Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Before we dive in, I want to thank our listeners and fans, especially those who have given us reviews. Reviews help other people find our podcast. This one comes from Jenny Lyon. Inspiration overload. If you or someone you know is struggling, this is for you. The episode with Rachel Despain was so inspirational. Thank you for this gem. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for listening and for your five-star rating and review. And we will make sure that Rachel knows you found her episode inspirational. Dr. Amy Rothenberg is a beloved doctor, writer, and teacher in the world of natural and integrative medicine. She is also a cancer survivor and thriver whose book, You Finished Treatment, Now What?, a field guide for cancer survivors creates a roadmap to help navigate survivorship years. Dr. Rothenberg, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. You bet. All right. So I know that you've been a doctor much longer than you've been a cancer survivor. So I would actually like to start there. Can you take us back? You know, did you always want to be a doctor? Like where did that begin? Um, it's a kind of interesting story. I did always want to be a doctor. I was one of those kids who kind of had that in my mind. But early on in life, I uh, was just humming along with a very sort of blessed and charmed childhood. My father died in his sleep when I was 12 of a heart attack. Um, so that was a big shock and loss and grief, of course, to our family. Uh, and a couple of years later, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and died a couple of years later when I was 16. So there I was, no parents. Um, I think in hindsight, she had a genetic mutation. They weren't looking for those in the 1970s, but, uh, she put up a good fight in the end. She died from her illness and I got disillusioned with the whole world of medicine and the whole concept of being a doctor because medicine had not really helped my parents uh, in a significant way. So I went into other areas. I was very interested in biology. I was very interested in plants. I was interested in ornithology. I had, a, I was kind of diverse interest and I always loved to write, dabbled a little bit with journalism and I kept getting pulled back to the human sciences, nutrition, anatomy and physiology. And I, you know, I, sometimes you just have to go where the world takes you, whatever you believe in, God, nature, the universe. Um, one of the jobs that I had as part of my undergraduate education at Antioch College, which is a school that emphasizes the co-op program was in Portland, Oregon. And I happened to fall into a household there with three naturopathic doctors when I was just 19 years old. And I had never heard of it. I thought it was something about trail maintenance or something. (laughs) I really just didn't know. But the first night sitting at dinner with them, and they were at the time a first, second, and third year student. And they talked about their draw to natural medicine and what their experiences were in naturopathic medical school, I immediately, I felt like I was struck by a bolt of lightning. This is your path. This is what you're supposed to do. So very early on in life, I got a a good 
um, strong message, I guess you could call it, and with wonderful people, went back to Antioch, finished up my prerequisites, and arrived at naturopathic school a couple of weeks after graduating from college, and I sort of never looked back. I did meet my husband the first day of naturopathic medical school, I will say that, also some kind of divine <laughs> intervention, although we did not get together until the very end of our fourth year, we did meet the first day. And really? Oh, yes. okay. Why? With other people, you know, oh. uh, during those years, we worked out a lot of the, you know, stressful stuff before we were even together, which is good. And we've been married now. Uh, and I know exactly how long we've been married because we graduated medical school on a Saturday and we got married on Sunday. The next day? In 86. So yes, we just celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary and um, wow. going, going strong three kids later and uh, a, a wonderful practice together and also working in the world of advocacy to promote the integration of natural medicine uh, into conventional care. I think patients want it. I think the research is strong to show that preventive medicine is way better than treating and that we can use natural medicine side by side with almost any conventional care. And with regard to cancer, that means using natural medicine to help enhance the efficacy of conventional care, uh, prevent or address any side effects that arise. And then the focus of my book, which is really about mopping up after conventional care and shifting the internal environment to be less hospitable to further cancer. Wow. Okay. I love it. I can go in so many different directions, but before we dive into your cancer journey, is there a particular patient or someone who really stands out to you in all the time that you've been a naturopathic doctor? Oh my goodness. Um, I've treated thousands of people over my career. I've had that blessing to, to have that opportunity to work with people. I think what I would, the person I'm thinking of that comes to mind right away is actually a, a mother who's now a grandmother. And my treating her back in the 1980s with allergies and uh, food sensitivities, irritable bowel syndrome, and then also working with her husband who had cardiovascular disease risk factors, family history of cardiovascular disease, and then each of her three children, one who had pretty bad ADD, one who came in as a teenager struggling with depression and body image kind of things, and then a son who was actually on the spectrum. So I think about that family, that's fairly typical for us to treat a wide range of problems and concerns. Um, in the last years since I was sick in 19, uh, 19, 2014, I would say that I am treating more people who are in cancer treatment and afterward, just because I have quite a lot of street cred, if you will, having gone through what I went through. Uh, but I, I do have a family practice. I enjoy treating people of all ages. And I will mention a patient I had just this week was a woman who's 97 and came in because <laughs> she was having problems with cold sores, which is not such an uncommon complaint. But boy, sitting with her, I, I had things I could help her and offer her. But I just felt like, wow, I have so much more I can learn from her. 97, she's, she's seen so much. She's raised yeah. a family been through the revolution of many of them <laughs> I right. from her. So that was really a pleasure just sitting with her and getting to know her a bit. And then of course, also hopefully helping her with her cold sores. Well, thank you for sharing that. I love that you treated an entire family with very different issues. Interesting about that is that when you have the opportunity to work with the whole family, you, first of all, you can start to see the genetics in play. 
and what things oh. are running down the family tree. You can also start to see what are the habits and the lifestyle choices made in a family. You know, we are a product of our genetic inheritance yeah. and then all of the choices that we have made and the environment that we are raised in. And so I love working with young families and helping getting them on a good path in terms of eating well and remembering to have family time and time to connect socially with people that you love getting exercise, not being sedentary. I mean, there's so many things to talk about. And then also to work on the preventive medicine approaches pertinent to your genetic inheritance. Mm. If everybody in your family has heart disease, you have more of a chance of having heart disease. And here are the things you can do to proactively prevent it. And the same is true for cancer. So I would say that preventive medicine is really the way to go. And I think in terms of public health, there's more and more appreciation of that, particularly vis-a-vis -vis COVID, when we understood that people that had underlying diseases, diabetes, heart disease, history of cancer, were more susceptible to both getting COVID and having worse outcomes. It was sort of the, you know, the bell ringing around, we have to address chronic disease, you know, being overweight, another yes. risk factor. Things Huge. are modifiable for most people. Uh, and just really giving people that information that your underlying chronic health actually affects your susceptibility to all kinds of acute and viral illnesses. So we have a lot of work to do and uh, do. we hopefully are going to get there sooner than later. You're so interesting. You are so, so interesting and fascinating. I have another question because you went there. So I want to take a little further and we can always cut this out if you like. So what do you think? of this movement with body positivity, where I feel like there are influencers and even huge media companies who are pushing this narrative under the guise of body positivity that obesity is okay. And I'll give you an example. So Cosmopolitan in the UK did a series of covers. I think it's been a year ago now, year and a half. And on the cover, it was, this is healthy. And it was 11 different women. Three of those women were obese. I took issue with it. I had a problem with it when obesity is linked to 13 different cancers. Yeah. So what is your take on that? Well, my, my first card that I lay down when somebody asks me a question like that is that I believe that we have an overemphasis on thinness and that that's also not healthy for people. Exactly. I agree disordered eating, which is so prevalent, starting at younger and younger ages in boys and in girls and non-binary people. We know that obesity is a risk factor for so many illnesses. Can you have an individual person who's quite overweight, who's healthy? You can, meaning that their lab work is normal, they're, right. if they're going to do any scanning, it's normal, but are they at a risk at later dates for developing illnesses? They are. So I try to couch it all in we just want you to be as healthy as possible. And here are the things you can do to, what are your health goals? Try to figure out what the people coming in to meet as, as a doctor or what are their actual goals? I'm not going to push anything on somebody if they don't want it, it doesn't work. I agree. And we know that the diet industry is also super toxic and yo-yo dieting is probably worse than being just overweight, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Going up and down 30, 40 pounds is probably worse than being at a heavier weight all the time. So there are there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I, I appreciate the question. I tend to agree with you. And I think that people are not always informed about the role of being overweight in 
chronic health illnesses. I feel that's part of patient education, public health education. And in every state, there are movements for you know, more movement in children, healthier school lunches. They don't all get to these goals, but they're articulated goals and they're good goals. And we know that obesity is also something that comes down the genetic pipeline. And we know that there's a whole world of obesogens. Obesogens are things in the environment that impact our capacity to attain and maintain a healthy weight. They're really? Structures. Oh, yes. I have a whole chapter in my book about this. Interesting. It's related to the toxic environment that we find ourselves in between the water, the food sources, the air. Many of these things we can control, such as our personal care products, cleaning products in the home. Hopefully people, more and more people are, are living in areas where they have access to healthy and organic foods. We know that organic food is better than not organic food in terms of nutrient content and less pesticides, insecticides, growth hormones, et cetera. So when we talk about obesogens, it's everything from the plastics that we drink our water from to sales receipts at stores. There are all kinds of chemicals that we know are put people at risk for certain illnesses, including being overweight and definitely including cancer. So we can't control everything because we're just our individual person living a life, but we can control the things we can control, we should. And the things we're not sure about, I often really promote the concept of the precautionary principle. If you're not sure it's good for you and you might be bad for you, why don't you try to sidestep it? Yeah. <laughs> those people who have the bandwidth, honestly, the bandwidth, the energy, the time to work on environmental issues that impact the kinds of chemicals that we have in the environment that impact health, you know, more power to you. And, and thank you for those efforts. I, I do. I sometimes go into the pay and pray mode because I don't have time to join that committee or go to that. <laughs> you know, we, we have to address our environment because it's impacting our health quite a bit. Oh, okay. I've never heard that phrase before. All right. Okay. Let's okay. get back to you. Where did your cancer journey, and I know journey is not the best word, but it's kind of my default word. Where did your cancer journey begin? Did you have any signs or symptoms? Take us back there. Well, my mother died of breast cancer at 50. She was diagnosed at 48. So that's where my story really began. Yeah. Um, my sister, who was four years older than me, had had breast cancer three times and ovarian cancer uh, before I was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 54. And when I was diagnosed, they said, well, you know, it's early stage. You just need lumpectomy and a little radiation. I said, no, we're going to remove both my breasts because I've seen what my sister has gone through and we might not have that gene. We had tested negative for anything really, uh, but we certainly have something and I don't right. want to be visiting this in a few years. So I had a double mistake. You, before that, did you have yeah. any symptoms no, though? History. Like, did you no, feel I, a lump? I felt, in fact, my husband and I are very avid ballroom dancers. And uh, on December 31st, between 2013 into 14, we were out at a ballroom dance party. I did not sit down for one dance. I danced straight through from 10 to about four in the morning. Oh my God. That's Came awesome. home, slept till about nine. When I woke up, I found a lump in my breast. I had never felt better, looked better, more energy. I literally, I had no symptoms of anything. I would say perfect health if, if there's such a thing. But you when felt I found it. A lump in my breast, I knew it was not a good thing. I'd had mammograms, you know, regularly, never had a callback on a mammogram, did not have fibrocystic breasts. I uh, had no other risk factors except for my family history. Um, you know, I, I never smoked. I never overdrank. I've nursed 
several children for many years. I, you know, I just did everything that is sort of supposed to make you less susceptible to developing breast cancer. Found the lump, was diagnosed the next day, or had a biopsy the next day, diagnosed a couple of days later, early stage. Had the breast removed, had four rounds of chemo. There was a little bit of lymphovascular invasion on the tumor itself, though my nodes were negative. Had about 28 radiation treatments to my chest wall. In the process, they asked me to get genetic testing, which I had done two years prior. I said, I, I was just tested. They said, the test has gotten better. Right. Lo and behold, I do carry the BRCA mutation. So glad I had both breasts removed because I would have had to go back to get the other one left behind. My doctor said, well, why don't we wait a year? You recover from the breast cancer. And I just want to parenthetically say that I did quite well going through the breast cancer. People can read about it. I blogged extensively on the Huffington Post. If you type in my name, Amy Rothenberg, Huffington Post, 2014, you can follow my, my trip through surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, uh, genetic testing. I wrote about it quite a lot. And what I was writing about was how to use natural medicine to enhance efficacy, prevent side effects, address side effects that arise, you know, and then mop up afterwards. So they said, let's wait a year and we'll remove your ovaries is what you do when you have a genetic mutation. Right. Like yeah. And I was complete with my, uh, I completed my breast cancer treatment in July. And I said to them, this year has not been that good. I don't want to bring it into next year. As soon as my hematocrit hits 36, let's go for it. Cause my blood counts have gone down with treatment. Right. Of course. Sure. I went in to have a complete hysterectomy in, in July and cancer was found on both ovaries. <gasps> what? Yeah. Exactly. In some ways, the breast cancer, you know, saved my life because right. there was stage one ovarian cancer with clean margins, negative nodes, a clean abdominal wash. In fact, my sister had had something quite similar some five years before. Five years before the standard of care was complete hysterectomy done in that ensuing five years, it became more like we take no prisoners, have about 12 more rounds of chemo. So I had my last round of chemo for ovarian cancer on January 2nd, 2015. It was sort of perfect bookends to this not very good year. I did oh pretty gosh. well, but by the end, I was pretty shot. I Were did you? say to my husband at my last chemo, okay, honey, in six months, we're doing our first triathlon. <laughs> he looked at me like, oh, we are? I was like, <laughs> Yes, I need something else to focus on. I need to get back into the gym. I need to have a goal. Yeah. Uh, so we all, the three kids, the partners, the siblings, we all came, about 20 of us, and did a triathlon about six months later. And in fact, I'm doing another one in two days. So um, I, I've stayed true to every year doing a triathlon. And I have to say that for me, going through that was certainly the biggest challenge I've ever had in my life, but I had tremendous support from my husband and partner, of course, my kids, my family, and also from naturopathic doctors who are expert at integrative oncology. In other words, working right. with conventional care, not against conventional care. Exactly. Doing things to help patients do better during conventional care. Because you have three children and because of this BRCA gene, have any of them been tested yet? I prefer not to talk about that just for their own privacy. Sure. Um, but Got it. Family, you know, things definitely do run in families. So if you have had genetic testing done, be sure, you know, if you've tested positive, be sure that your kids at a certain age doesn't have to do when they're super young, but they do need to do that eventually. What was your worst moment during that year, that year of 2014 of battling two different kinds of cancer? 
my worst moment was that I took a, a, a fall, a, just a, a simple fall over a, a little part of a rug that was sticking up and I landed at my arms outstretched and I didn't really think much about it. It didn't, I didn't feel hurt. I got up, went on with my day. The next day I had tremendous pain up kind of in front of my shoulder. It took several weeks to determine the fact that I had a very large hematoma. So oh. I had bled into the joint capsule and the area in front. And the most difficult time I had that whole year was the pain associated with that hematoma. The only thing that felt good was standing in a hot shower. And I, I was taking two hour showers. I mean, it was, it was just so crazy. It did heal. I did get better from it. It's not something that's going to kill you. But that was my worst moment, I, I have to say. And oftentimes with people going through treatment, it's something unrelated to the treatment. That's the worst thing. I yeah. just heard this over and over again. We still get other illnesses. People have injuries. People have losses. The psycho-emotional stresses can be, can be hard. And I would say the other piece for me that was very challenging was I was much less resilient in all the ways that I know myself to be quite resilient. So I didn't have, I had more easily frustrated, more easily disappointed, more easily thrown off my game. And I remember often saying to my husband, I need a pep talk. I need a pep talk. <laughs> um, of course, he was very generous with his pep talks. But that's a piece that I think is true for a lot of people going through anything hard or any chronic illness or anything that's lasting for months and months, our capacity to bounce back. The little things that, you know, we go through every day that can throw us off our game. We have less resilience. And I knew I was better, you know, some months later, I don't even remember what it was, but something happened with at work. And I just, that would have been something that I would not have been able to handle during treatment. And I was like, oh, it's fine. This is how we're going to handle it. Boom, 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 boom. And fine. I always encourage my cancer patients or any patients with a serious illness to go to the doctor with somebody. Bring a bring yes, a buddy. Absolutely. An adult child, whatever. Uh, you bring your parent, whatever, because you need someone else to run interference, ask questions, write things down, be your support person. I knew I was better when I said to my husband, probably about six months after my care was complete, and my care is two hours away in Boston. You know, I can go myself, I can drive myself, I'm fine. I, I knew that that was a, a milestone. Yeah. Yeah. To be I able to see that. myself and not need that psychological support. What was your best moment? My best moment was probably getting chemo, uh, sitting in a, in a large room with you know a lot of other people getting chemo. I was listening to uh, some music on my headphones. My husband and I were there together. He came with me to most every one of my infusions. And we just started doing some ballroom dance in the middle of that chemo suite. <laughs> What's you did? What, what kind of dancing? What was it? The salsa? Was it's it the nightclub? It's called a nightclub two step. It's, okay. It's common, uh, lovely, slower dance with you can do in a small space. That was a high point. I another, love that. Yeah. That's another cool. point that I think was, I, I, I think about sometimes is when people are going through radiation, one of the best things they can do for themselves is to exercise immediately before laying on the table or getting in the position for the radiation. We know that when you're better perfused, the radiation works better. Your underlying organs are safer. Mm. And so we used to take a nice long walk at a park right near our local hospital where I had my radiation treatment. And I would get on that table perspiring, you know, really perspiring. And a lot of the, there's always women in, in that situation setting me up and lighting me up just right using my tattoo that I had between my breasts and getting my neck shoulder pillow just right. And 
they would put a band around my ankles so that my legs kind of flopped out gentle like that. And I remember just reorganizing my understanding, my thinking about the radiation experience, that this was a spa experience. And I was just going to breathe into it. And I'm like doing my deep breathing and meditating. And these nurses or techs, they just got such a riot out of my reframing this. And I also never wore a hospital gown. I bought a big, beautiful sarong that I had and I would wrap it around myself. <laughs> oh, I love that though. I just, because these things matter. Control. Yeah. Control what you can. Exactly. I love it. What is one thing that you wish, even with all of your knowledge that you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? I wish I knew that I was going to be going through it twice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Budgeted a little bit better, my psychological <laughs> budgeting for such a thing. I had been through cancer treatment with my sister so many times and with scores and scores of patients. So I pretty much knew what was coming down the pike. I did not go in blind. Right. I had a good sense of what things were going to be. I did a lot of fasting related to chemo. There's a lot of evidence that in the right person, it's not for everybody. Fasting right before, during, and right after chemo, uh, reduced calorie fasting, not total fasting, helps weaken cancer cells, and that helps chemo work better. I wish I had known how hard it would be for me to fast. I just love food, and I have a pretty fast metabolism, and I work out a lot, and so I'm accustomed to eating a lot, uh, but I was committed to doing the fasting, and I, I found that very challenging. And I, although it's also known that people who use that during a fasting mimicking diet during chemo tend to have less side effects. And I definitely had, I think, pretty low in terms of side effects, how they can go during my care. I like the fasting mimicking diet where, like you said, it's not a total fast, but I, I try to do it once a quarter. I don't always succeed, but I, I like it. Um, I have a whole chapter in my book on diet and one of it's about what to eat, but also when to eat. I am a huge fan of the elongated overnight fast as a form of fasting mimicking diet. So I, I'm not rigid because I really try to not be rigid, but uh, whenever I stop eating at night, either dinner time, or I might have a snack at eight or nine, I look at the clock and breakfast is going to be 14 hours later. Yeah. A lot of the 14 hours comes and I'm not hungry. If I'm not hungry, I don't eat. And this allows our body the opportunity because it's not focusing on digestion to right. take care of other things, particularly immune function, particularly the part of the immune system that goes after wayward cells, some of which are cancer cells. So uh, lots of good evidence about the fasting mimicking diet and the prevention of cancer. And if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and why? I would make mandatory exercise part of every K through 12 education program every day. I uh, love it. I uh, used to teach PE. Oh, you to, did? To oh. elementary school children. Yeah. Oh, well, bless your heart. That's the most important thing you can do. Being sedentary is worse than smoking. We know that for your health. And if you, and habits are hard to form. So if we form the habits when people are younger, they will tend to take them into their teen and adult years. That's the single most important thing we can do is get people moving more. Any kind of movement, we think about exercise in three categories, aerobic, something stretching and something resistance or weight training. Right. If you can only do one, do the aerobic, but it's important to try to squeeze in the other two if, as you can. And again, it's based on risk factors. So if I have a woman who is on tamoxifen or another you know, aromatase inhibitor, which puts her at more risk for osteoporosis, yes, she needs the aerobic exercise, but she really needs the weight training. 
That's very important for maintaining bone density. So you have to go by what a person's family history is, genetic inheritance, and then lifestyle choices they've made to date and other underlying illnesses that they may present with and gear our treatments toward them across the board, but in particular with exercise piece. I love that answer. And I agree with you because like you said, habits are hard to form, but if, if it starts in childhood, you know, it's a lot easier and it, and that person can carry it through into adulthood. So I, wow, I really, I really love that. And unfortunately arts and PE have been cut from public school education, not in every place, but in, in most schools. Such a mistake. And I also yeah. think that doctors should be writing prescriptions for exercise and that we should be making gyms and YMCAs more affordable and accessible to, to all people that, you know, when you go into a doctor's office, really next door should be the, the place that you go work out or, or, or nearby and accessible. We should be writing prescriptions for people to spend more time outside if it's safe. And this is, this is like you see the determinants of health and why people's zip codes matter to their health. It's not okay. I mean, it's the reality. We have to acknowledge it as a reality and redouble our efforts to make exercise more available. I mean, I was recently visiting uh, another city and state and I, I got off the airplane and I could not believe the amount of obesity. It wasn't just the number of people, but it was how overweight the people were did and you, little, little kids. I mean, Did you come to the deep South by chance? Afraid I did. All the statistics are, we know they're, they're worse. Oh yeah. The deep South. Yeah, it's, they are. It's all that delicious food. Yeah. That food. <laughs> are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? You bet. Okay. Here we go. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beach Boys. What is one word that best describes you? Enthusiastic. I can see that, definitely. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Probably the song from the Dixie Chicks, Wide Open Spaces. And what about the last meal you want to eat, since you love food? Oh, you bet. Uh, scrambled eggs sauteed kale with carrots uh and a nice piece of chocolate okay that, that's so specific it seems like you've thought about it quite a lot <laughs> that's my, that's my go-to dinner you know or when i'm in a pinch so you you bet <laughs> i love it what about the last person or people you want to see oh my husband and three kids and their partners and the last words you will speak i love you i love you all and aside from Cancer U, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I also want you to tell people how they can get in touch with you. I think that the Livestrong website is quite good. They have lots of great information around diet and food, about exercise. They sponsor a wonderful free program at many YMCAs across the country called Livestrong for people that are in or after cancer treatment. It's a terrific program. Uh, there, there are many, many resources. And if you go on my website, I have a listing of resources you can also check out. My website is dramyrothenberg.com. It's D-R-A-M-Y-R-O-T-H-E-N-B-E-R-G.com. I would say that uh, to, to find my book, you can order it anywhere books are sold. I try to encourage people to order at independent bookstores, but you can certainly get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It is available for pre-order. Anybody who pre-orders the book 
and sends me proof of their pre-order, I will send you the free introduction to the book by Audible. I, I read the book for Audible, so I, I will send that to you. And you can mail those receipts or proof of your purchase to my medical practice, which is office at nhcmed.com. Okay. So we will put all that in the workshop and the show notes. And so when does your book come out? I thought it was out for some reason. I didn't know this. Out September 27th. Oh, and very exciting news. Yesterday, a patient called me. They were like, have you seen your book on the upcoming Amazon books on the topic of cancer, which I didn't even know was a thing. Yeah. It was number, it was number 11. That's awesome. Oh, That's then it's going to keep going up. It's going very to keep going up. I'm not even yeah. sure how to make that algorithm, but yeah, if you read the book, if you put a nice review on Amazon, that's always helpful. I think the book will help a lot of people, especially people who are suffering and, and struggling with symptoms they have left over from conventional cancer care. Many yeah. approaches are life-saving. They are curative. And yet you're left with lymphedema, peripheral neuropathy, fatigue, yeah. brain fog, lack of satisfaction with intimacy and sex, et cetera. So I talk about the natural medicine approaches to the common things people have after care. And then the rest of the book is devoted to how to really shift your internal environment to be less hospitable to either new cancers or metastatic disease. So it covers quite a bit of ground, but there's a lot of me in the book. I tell a lot of patient stories. I try to make it accessible and not overwhelming. And you can read this book in any order you want. You can flip flop through chapters. You don't have to read it in order. Which do I think you share good. your story in the book as well? I do. I good. do. Uh, I mean, not every gory detail, but there's a lot of me in the book and a lot of examples and some funny examples. There's something with cancer survivors, which is called somatosensory amplification. In other words, you're actually fine. Or maybe you have a few things, but any little symptom you get, you think, oh, I wonder if that's cancer. Oh, I wonder if that's cancer. You know, you get a little gas and bloating. Oh, sure. I have cancer. it's very, very common. And it, for some people, it's limiting in their life and it's impacting their health. One day I was in the house several years, you know, three or four years after care, cancer care. And I came around the corner and I whacked my head into the door jam. Don't even ask me how, I don't know how. And I got a big egg on the side of my head, you know, and I got the ice on it, whatever. I don't think I was concussed. It wasn't that bad, but it was like a pretty bad head pain. And the next day I had a headache. I'm not a headache person. I don't get headaches. I had a headache and I was laying in bed. I said to my husband, Oh my God, I hope I don't have brain cancer. I mean, and it, it was so, it was so ridiculous. We both started laughing because we, it was, it was so ridiculous, you know, right. but there it is. And you knew so, why you had the headache. You knew exactly. Where, exactly, where the headache. Yeah. exactly. So that's why, you know, I have a whole chapter in the book on the head game and why it's so important to be in control of our head game, our emotions, have things we do on a regular basis to bring us to a balanced state. With, with more equanimity and not going too high with the highs or too low with the lows and coming, having a place to come center and to be present in the world from that centered place. So we're not pulled in every which way. Gosh, that's a great example. I'm so glad you shared that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, but, and also sharing your expertise. You bet. It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. 
If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.